I am all for paying to market to new customers, but I'll never be able to wrap my mind around paying for our own diners. Why should we have to pay cover fees? It's like getting penalized for being busy. That's why I'm a huge fan of Yelp Guest Manager. It's a reservation and waitlist system connected to a diner network nine times larger than Open Table, and they never charge cover fees. Learn about their new $99 per month plan for newly opened restaurants at restaurants.yelp.com forward slash podcast or call 877-571-9357 and tell them full comp sent you. Now here we go. At the extreme, take someone like John George or Danny Meyer on the culinary side, right? They have the benefit. You don't really have to do at that level a ton of targeted marketing. You really kind of like have to just open. You're always going to get press. Like my focus, to be honest with you, is really laser, laser focused on making sure it's as good as it can be from the very beginning. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry. Featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators. Served up on the house. Why are marketing and media creation an afterthought for so many of us in this industry? Seth Godin would call it an idea virus. This concept that marketing is optional for restaurateurs. But what if it wasn't? What would that look like? Today we chat with restaurateur and media mogul John McDonald, who's grown a successful media empire alongside his restaurant empire, leveraging the lessons learned from one to improve the other. Today we unpack why media matters. So I was in college, going to Columbia University, and very good friends of mine were building the Mercer Hotel. As a result of knowing them, I was aware that there was a space right next to the hotel, which was essentially a garage that was an old family that had it for 60 years. The hotel had subleased that garage because they weren't sure that they were going to be able to get a license to put a restaurant in the hotel. And I was working for these guys pretty much as an intern that I would do anything. It didn't matter. I think at one point I even painted one of their apartments. It just didn't matter. I'm like, I want to be around them. I was still going to college. My relationship with these guys allowed me insight until like they were 10, 12 years older than me. They were developing a project like the Mercer. I quickly witnessed how they were really bringing together design, concepts, and like personally involved. Like they were both very hands on on all these decisions. Didn't matter if it was wallpaper on the wall, a chair, a fabric. You know, I can just remember all these times walking the office seeing architectural drawings. And I think it really resonated with me. And so at one point, I just said to them, you know, you're not doing anything with the garage. Would you sublease it to me? And I had this idea, which was essentially a nightclub that wasn't a nightclub that was meant to just be a seven day a week cool bar. And it sounds crazy. It was super simple. I was very naive. They did it. And one of them, this guy, Campion Platt, who was also involved at the time, he helped me with the design and he was the architect. He was a partner. And I just asked a lot of questions and leaned on people that had a lot of expertise. And from the minute it opened, it just worked, right? So like I've been on that block since I started building Merc Bar in 90, probably 1992, opened it in 93. And until I tore the building down 22 years later, that was the only building that I ever went to work at. Like in theory, like all my other businesses, I launched out of that building, second floor office, 
no windows, not a fancy office, just total gorilla. And it was the best. I mean, I think it's part of the reason I did a lot of other things, whether it was magazine and so on. Well, let's detour into media. So four or five years later, it's 1999. You founded and became the editorial director of City Magazine. How would you describe City Magazine to someone who's never heard of it? My vision for City was always that it was kind of an extension of the things that I liked. So if I looked at the things that I enjoyed personally, aesthetically, lifestyle-wise, it was the big categories, right? So it was general interest title. And it was, again, taking travel, design, fashion, and food. And if you just took those up and put it in a blender, and look, all magazines cover that, right? It doesn't matter if you're Vanity Fair or Travel and Leisure. So it's not like we weren't doing anything that was groundbreaking. We were just a bunch of young guys and girls that wanted to do it from our point of view. So again, I didn't have like under the guts, under the hood magazine experience, other than I just knew what I liked to see, what I liked to read. And back then, you know, people that were running magazines had really strong point of views, right? You, you spent a lot of time focusing on what's going to go on the front of the magazine, what goes in the back of the magazine. You painstakingly go over that and over that because you, when you hit print, that's it. It's not like today with digital is everybody's just constantly publishing and publishing and publishing. It's not nearly as important. I guess my follow-up to that would be, was that a distraction or was that an essential element on your entrepreneurial journey? What did winning look like when you founded the magazine and how did it help you become a better restaurateur? I don't know if it helped me specifically become a better restaurateur, but it gave me diversity and it had a lot of the connectivity that existed within the process of making a magazine, my relationships with the editors, the photographers, the models, the art directors, the makeup, the hair, all that ecosystem. To your point, when I launched 99, I also launched Canteen. So like 99, 2000 was the start of that as well. So not only with Merck Bar, but with Canteen, which was the first restaurant I did that was designed by Mark Newson. It just gave me another, and again, like no cell phones, you had your network and your network was it, right? So my network, I think, was benefited by having that additional business that was a super creative community and all the way to the business side. I've literally studied your life and I've studied your career. <laughs> and I want to throw out some theories to you that I have kind of based on this whole thing. So when I look at the magazine and I look at the team and I also look at where you were in your career. What it seems like when I look at the other ventures that you did subsequently, it seems like through that, and maybe it was a subconscious, maybe it was an organic thing, but through the magazine, it seems like you really figured out who, not what, right? That it's about the curation of a team is what determines a successful project, not necessarily the original idea. Because the idea of a generalized city magazine is ordinary, incredibly yeah. ordinary. Yeah. There were a bunch of them at the time. There's like, still a bunch of them. of them, right? Yeah. But the people that you brought in were able to create something entirely unique. And then when you look at the parallels in the restaurant industry, the question that I've always asked at the beginning of every creative process with every door that we open is, does the world need another restaurant? Does the world yeah. need another bar? And the answer is always no. No, unless right? Unless we do this, unless we position ourselves this way, unless this is what we're offering to this specific community. But those answers are never what, right? It's who, right? It's if we bring these people in, right? I mean, look, to that point, 
in our run of city, you know, here we were, guerrilla office, no money, no budget. I had no partners. I didn't raise money. We worked with like this incredible group of photographers that were given total run to do whatever they wanted within reason. And Fabrice and myself would sit with them and meet with them. And then we'd be like, we're going to give you 16 pages to do whatever you want. And the guy would be like, hey, we're going to photograph men's suits on the left page. And we're going to do a still life of like bananas on the right page. Any other magazine would have said, well, I'm not going to waste the right page with bananas because there's no editorial credits and we're not going to get advertisers. It's going to look bad. People are going to think it's too weird. But we let it happen. And it resulted in multiple national magazine awards. I mean, if you, I, it's, I'm impressed that you read all that stuff because like going back to like David Carr, I don't know if you saw the David Carr piece. Did you read that? Yeah, I did. We literally, I think we won photography a year, general excellence a year, design one year, total gorilla. I'll never forget the year we won for photography portfolio. I think we were up against Vogue and Esquire and Martha Stewart, like major titles. And we, we won. The faces of most of those people were just kind of like, what? Like, you got to be kidding me. But, you know, it worked. That wasn't our goal. The goal was just, to, again, to, to be honest with you, just put really beautiful things in the magazine. So that's kind of fun retrospectively to look back at. We're almost 30 years into your career in the hospitality industry. And I'm curious to know, with all of the locations that you own and everything that you have going on and all of the side projects that you have, for the most part, do you do what you want to do every day? Have you been able to build out a life and a career? Yeah, that's a recurring topic as well. And I have to say, the more things that I've subtly added over the years, I always say, I almost do what I want to do all the time. I've tried to eliminate the things that I don't want to do, especially because I have two kids now. So I would say for since the first kid, I've really focused on not doing anything that I don't want to do. Now, I also say that I do a lot of things that are unpleasant, but I like <laughs> them, right? Like it's hard. Like I like the grind. I don't mind the problems. I like getting in on it. I like solving it. I don't think everybody's cut out to own their own business. I don't think everyone's certainly cut out to be a restaurateur or own a law firm or own, run an ad agency or do anything, right? And often in the 20 years that people work for me, I see it all the time. Someone always thinks they have it and they want to be an owner and they have no clue what that means. What does that mean to you? You know, I think it starts with having real ideas that can be brought to life. So an example of this is, I had a chef that worked for me for a while. He always wanted, quote, his own place. And one day I would sit with him. I said, you know, what does your place look like? He's like, well, what do you mean? I'm like, well, you want to be an you want to have your own spot. You want to be an owner. You want to have it like you must have a bunch of things on the idea board, so to speak, like the virtual idea board in the back of your head. And he's like, well, I don't know. I just want to own my own place. I just want to have a restaurant that's mine. And I'm like, well, I got like 10 ideas in my head. There's no right answer, right? His answer could have been. Yes, I want my restaurant to be a hybrid Spanish-Chinese-Thai restaurant. The walls are going to be red, and the windows are going to look like this, and I'm going to print the menu on whatever, right? Like all those details. So to me, I'm always, you know, think of anything, I'm trying to just edit back ideas and like hone in on, I guess, what's most hitting all the buttons that'll make me happy. You know, like the reason I changed El Toro Blanco into Hancock Street and then subsequently Burger and Barrel was just that. I wanted to do new projects. I wanted to do them with people that were going to really own it, be super passionate, 
So in this case at Hancock Street, Ryan, for six, seven months because of COVID, he was just so passionate and proved himself to be a guy that was going to take total ownership of the culinary aspect that that excited me. His excitement excited me. And it's kind of like when people say like, you live in New York City vicariously when it's, you know you could have a friend that's a tourist and they land and you see how excited they are and then you get excited again. To me, that was what that was, right? So his excitement made me more excited. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to change it. And at some point, these businesses just become businesses, right? Unless you're really into them, it's just a business that sends me a bunch of emails and reports and problems and then a P&L every month. You're just in a cycle of doing things. And there's plenty of cases where that's fine. But COVID kind of hit me in a way where I thought, all right, I'm going to dig in. I'm going to get even more creative. I'm going to try to make new things and then make my existing things better. And that was so flipping now to like Bartulix. I was opening B&B. I was going to reopen and then ran into Justin Bazderic. I'm like, hey, what's going on? Would you ever consider coming into Manhattan with Mexicans since you have Oshimoko, you have Michelin Star, you have all this credibility? I'd love to do something new because I just killed my Mexican restaurant that I had. And let's do something totally different. And again, two or three months of conversations and creatively discussing things. And I knew him because he for a long time. So I had a trust. I think that's really helpful. You know, I knew him when he was a young chef at Jean George. He worked for Jean George for a long time, which means, again, much different than a guy that does like their classic resume. I'm sure you've seen him one year, one year, two years, 18 months. Yeah. When you stick it out with a real pro and an organization, that's like to me, compound interest in life. I think it's really easy to look at your life and be jealous. I'm sure there are a bunch of folks listening that are just buried in their day to day in their single unit, or maybe they have two or three, but with every restaurant they open, they subsequently buy themselves another job. How did you get out? How did you become a business owner? How did you begin to work on the business more than you work in the business? You know, that answer is tricky because I think for most people, you're right. Most people, owner, chef owner, manager owner that pulls together some capital, opens a small restaurant or a cafe or any small business, right? Typically, I would say those people work much harder than I do, much harder. Like it's really at that stage of the evolution of being an entrepreneur, it's really challenging because you're right, you're in it. Now, I was lucky because from the beginning, first of all, I had, again, incredible mentoring and parenting where I was always business minded. So even though I was doing the bar in the beginning, I did it nonstop. I mean, I opened at 23 and I kid you not. I loved it so much, which is not a surprise, I guess, if you're a 23, 24-year-old guy living in New York <laughs> City. And for me, I think I transitioned to a degree because, first of all, I was deeply committed for a long time. And I mean seven days a week. I'd get out of bed, go to the gym, go to the office on Sunday, count the money, do the bank, prep the bank, check the music, check the physical plant. It's all the basic stuff that always blows me away, right? Like you hire people today and it's weird because I expect everybody to like notice the light bulb is out. Notice that there's a scuff on the wall, you know, check things. I try to say to everyone in 90 seconds, if you're a manager and you walk into your business, the first 90 seconds or three minutes are the most important. If your schedule is, hey, show up at 10, in three minutes, you should check everything. Does the stereo work? Do the lights work? Is there a problem? Check the bathroom. Did someone graffiti the bathroom? Are you going to find out at three o'clock before you open? Or are you going to find out at 10 a.m.? And it's not so specific to that. What I'm saying is more about a mindset. 
let's flash back to 2008 with the creation of Tasting Table. For those that don't know, what is Tasting Table? So Tasting Table was essentially a daily culinary newsletter. And that was born out of, at the time, people that will remember Daily Candy was the most popular. And again, this is in that window, right, where all of a sudden everyone was getting email newsletters. And yep. Danny Levy, I think Danny Levy was the founder. She launched that. She became partners with Bob Pittman. And Bob and I were friends socially. Everyone you talked to would say, if they wrote about your restaurant or they wrote about your product, you sold. You oh, moved yeah. business. Like major. So the seed of that was I had written on a piece of paper one day, probably two years before we launched Tasting Table, that I want to do a food only version of Daily Candy. Like, what would it be like if it was just only food? Only food, only recipes, only culinary. And I knew I needed a name. I thought, oh, you know, before I do this on my own, I should ask Bob. I said, look, this is basically daily candy for foodies only. And he's like, I love it. Let's do it. That was it. We agreed on the spot, formed the LLC, put it together. We found an incredible founding partner and CEO, this guy, Jeff Bartakovics, who ran the business, did an incredible job. I don't know if this is relevant, but I often think about this is, when people are looking at like, oh, how did you launch this? Or how did you name a business? So much of it is just people, they just never start. You know you're not serious if you meet someone who says they're going to launch their own business, they have an idea, and you say to them, well, have you formed the LLC? And they'll say no, because it almost means like they're not sure. Right. I can't tell you the name of it, but I'm actually going to launch a very small fashion brand that's sort of centered on something very special to me. I've already trademarked it and filed the LLC in two seconds. I'm like, oh, Bing, I want to do that. Email to a lawyer. Hey, Anthony, can you file this? And by the way, file an LLC, put $2,000 in the bank so there's a bank account. So I also feel like when you talk to anyone that's telling you they're going to do something, anyone that's really serious, they've already done those things. I want to talk about audience. I think that's the next logical place for the conversation to go. Because with your restaurants, with your restaurant group, with City Magazine, with Tasting Table, I think what you've probably really seen the value of is creating audience, having people to talk to, having people that trust you, available to you. One of the things that I think was so apparent for so long, but really was highlighted by the pandemic, is the fact that so many restaurateurs don't have an audience. They don't own their customer base. They didn't have their name, their phone number, their email address, their birthday. They had no way to contact these people, especially in the throes of the pandemic, that genuinely wanted to help them survive. How has building audience influenced the way you market your restaurants? Well, you know, it's interesting because if you look back, back in the day when you didn't have that information, but you still had good businesses. So I would argue that something old, whether it was a Merck bar in that case where we definitely had an audience, we had a reputation, reputation sort of catapults into growing your audience, your core audience. And at the end of the day, right, when people talk about like who goes to your restaurant, you get that question a lot. And I always say, it's not really about the total of who goes to your restaurant, it's your core anchor inner circle that sort of pyramids out to it because any restaurant that's super busy, whether it's Allure or Mercer Kitchen or Balthazar or you name it, big restaurants that are doing hundreds and hundreds of people a day, you're going to have this amalgam of tourists and locals and even the best restaurants that have these reputations for 
pick a celebrity, whatever the hell you want to say, musician, actor, blah, blah, blah. All you need is like one of those in the room. And everybody extrapolates that and like, oh, that place is super cool because such and such goes there, right? So it's not like we own an audience and that's your audience. Like, oh, is your audience fashionable and cool? I'd say no. Like, you got to be kidding me. That's impossible. How am I going to do 450 dinners with just a bunch of like people that you just described, right? So right. that's challenging. Your point about it's hard to imagine someone's not sophisticated in today's world and doesn't have all their customers, considering that whether you're OpenTable, Resi, whoever platform you're using, right? I almost think everybody would have an ability to reach out to their customers, but I don't know. That's probably a question for one of those guys that doesn't have that. Why? I'd ask someone that doesn't have an ability <laughs> to get in your phone, like, why don't you? That's a little strange. When I did research on the actual launching of so many of your restaurant concepts, it was obvious that there was a marketing plan to begin with. And to kind of get into the question that you just asked, I think marketing is an afterthought for a lot of people. I think that they're busy. Yeah, there's a couple. I think the cumulative momentum that I have, right? I'm, I'm fortunate because of what you've said, right? So I benefit from the cumulative momentum of the 30 years. Even though a lot of people don't even know Merck Bar or Canteen, there's a lot of people that do. But this sort of train that's moving at 100 miles an hour definitely, in a weird way, is the foundation of, I guess, what my marketing of a new restaurant is, right? Because there's a certain known commodity that people will, that if you know, you know, and if you don't know, someone else might tell you, and then you trust that because someone else told you that like, oh, it's the same thing. Like at the extreme, take someone like John George or Danny Meyer on the culinary side, right? They have the benefit. You don't really have to do at that level a ton of targeted marketing. You really kind of like have to just open. You're always going to get press. Like my focus, to be honest with you, is really laser, laser focused on making sure it's as good as it can be from the very beginning and then fixing as many things as if it's life or death for the first 90 days. It needs to be treated like it's that extreme. The marketing element on my end might be a little different. And to be honest with you, it, it's kind of taken a life of its own now too, right? Because in the old days, if you had a New York Times piece or a W magazine or in the 90s, if you had like full page WWD, that's all you had to do. You had a full page WWD for my business, for downtown Soho, right? That might not be the case if you're some other kind of business. But in my instance, that was like it, right? Then you get the right New York Times feature. Everything else happens after that. Obviously, today with a million different outlets and every human being being their micro publisher with Instagram and TikTok, it's a totally different ballgame. But it still kind of starts with, if I'm going to open a new restaurant, is the New York Times going to write about it? And then everybody else is going to follow through and then it's going to sort of follow into place. And then it just becomes like, is it good or isn't good? If it's great, you hope that people are going to come in and it's going to resonate. And that media multiplier of all these hundreds of people that you can get in. Now, you're certainly right, though. Lots of places, I think, get the benefit of having a great reputation that probably don't necessarily aren't really great, but it doesn't really matter. Like if you can get that reputation, reputation is going to drive so much audience. The percentage of people that really know are not as big as the people that don't know. One of the analogies I've given before in the past is if you took sushi from a mediocre minus restaurant, put it on a plate and took it to one of the top 10 world-class sushi restaurants, the customer that walks in there 
once they go in the door, they're like, this is the best in the world. Yeah. So they're just going to assume this is the best in the world. Now, how many people would really know? Like, oh, that tuna is oxidized. The texture is off. They cut it wrong. The knife wasn't sharp enough. Not that many. Like out of 100 people, I'd be shocked if 5% really knew that nuance. Maybe 25% would just feel like, ah, it doesn't taste fresh or doesn't taste like it used to. But if no one had ever been there, that's my argument in terms of why reputation in many ways trumps a lot of things that go into our business. When I look at all of your concepts, you're in varying tiers of dining, all kinds of different cuisines. But what you see universally is that they're all busy. And like, that's a reputation you can't buy. I'll tell you, like we buy, you know, this is getting way into the like minutia, but we buy it from the same vendors, very hard to get them to even sell to you that the top five or six sushi restaurants buy in New York City. And our sushi is amazing. I'd argue, again, like to my point, if you were blindfolded, I know it's the same fish that goes to Shuko or 15 East or whatever. It's the same fish. It's the brick. It's what it is. We pay the same price. We have the audience that will pay the price, right? So that's also an element. If you don't have a venue where the customers want to walk in the door and pay $10 a slice, but they're used to paying five, that's a problem, right? So you have to have the experience, the cohesive experience that's going to allow you to even buy that. And it's the same thing at Bowery Meat Company. People will say often, oh, it's so expensive. I'm like, well, look, I'm buying the best beef in the world. Like there is no higher level. If you show me a higher level, I will buy it because I know my customer (laughs) will pay for it. Now, when someone goes on a review platform, I mean, it's hilarious. I mean, I'll get reviews on Bowery Meat Company. Oh, this steak was garbage. They must be getting it from a supermarket. I mean, it's hilarious, right? But the odds are that person probably has never had what we're even serving, and they've just decided they don't like it. Those are things like, look, we always look at them and we try to dig in and be like, wow, we didn't, this person wasn't happy. Let's figure out how we made a mistake. But at least at the end of the day, like I know if I go to sleep at night, I know that David at BMC is buying hands down the best product. He's on it every day. We treat the steak like we treat the sushi. The restaurant industry is full of unspoken rules and traditions about how things should be done. How would you like to see our industry turn the tables to create a better future for all of us? It's a pretty simple business. When I look back at doing this before all the changes and laws and rules and mandates and technology, I don't know if it's necessarily easier today. There's just a lot more. I debate this all the time. Like I'll go, you know, I have friends that have worked at Raul's for 30 years. I remember going to Raul's when I was a kid and the guys have been there forever. And we often have that discussion about like, you know, do all this stuff really make a difference? Is it really making it better? And look, there's certainly arguments that obviously more information, more information on your customers, how to do things that you might normally do. But then there's like legendary stories of like great managers that worked at Smith and Walensky for 40 years that knew everyone's family and kids and knew their golf game and knew all that, knew it by heart, right? And they'd walk in and be like, oh, how's your kid? Oh, how's your, what's your handicap, right? To me, it still just comes down to the business is the business. I think people are just looking for excuses and want to maybe over intellectualize what could be done to it. This whole notion of it's going to shift and there's going to be this great change. I don't know if there really is a change. It's really like hire good people, train them well, treat them well. And hopefully that all kind of like comes together, right? Because there's nothing else involved. Like I need good staff that are going to like buy into the program. They're going to follow the rules. Now, look, it has gotten harder. It's a lot harder because the current hiring, like everyone talks about that. But a lot of that's too, because 
you can't really discipline anymore. It's a funny topic because if you say that is someone's going to say, well, what do you mean you can't discipline? But you really can't. Like you hear the complaints nonstop. As soon as you tell someone they're not good at their job, they're going to tell you God knows what. And then it's a, you're at HR because someone said, oh, I can't believe that manager told me that I am bad at my job. And I was offended. I think, and by the way, you get that everywhere. I hear that from Everyone running, you know, whether it's a media company, a magazine, an ad agency. Oh, absolutely. That's not specific to our industry. I mean, I think that's just the evolving culture of work, I guess. Yeah, I guess. I'm glad I don't have that wired into me. I like to be told when I've made mistakes, right? Like even if it's customers, like it doesn't bother me when I read those reviews. I think if you're going to own your business, you got to have super thick skin. So I actually enjoy reading the negative and hearing the negative. In fact, I try to seek it. If I have friends of mine, they're like, oh, I've been to your restaurant. Love it, love it, love it. Instead of just kind of being, oh, that's great. Thanks a lot. I'd always, every once in a while, just say, well, hey, well, by the way, like, was there anything you didn't like? What didn't you like? Was there something wrong? I only ask once. Like, you don't try to extract it. Because right. generally, if it's, you just ask one time and they're like, yeah, honestly, no. Or someone might say, oh, well, I, I wasn't going to say anything, but you're, the people at the podium were a little bit rude or short or whatever it would be. It's invaluable insight. You know, at the end of the day, I feel like as entrepreneurs, we already know what we do well, right? The blind spot is, what are you not doing well? Where are the missed opportunities? Where are there flaws in the service model that could easily be improved? Yeah. It's also that classic, like 1% better every day. And if you do it every day and even saying that, I know I sound like some sort of Instagram slide that everybody and their mother <laughs> has some sort of like, everyone's an inspirational speaker and has wisdom and everyone even on Instagram is telling you to not be on Instagram and have social media. I'm like, that's what you do. You're like, you just posted this like five times in a week. So which is it? Are you trying to like communicate with me or tell me I should be off my phone? This is an industry podcast, and at the end of every episode, I like to give the guests an opportunity to speak directly to the audience. Do you have any advice or words of encouragement you'd like to offer? God, I hate giving people advice. I do. I really do. <laughs> I would say as it relates to restaurants, one of the things I've discussed lately is this notion of how VIPs have gone like exponentially greater. Everybody thinks they're a VIP. So my general mm -hmm. advice would be if you really like a restaurant, the greatest path to becoming a VIP is you go to the restaurant, you make a reservation. When you leave, you introduce yourself, you make another reservation for the following week. You show up the next week and you do it one more week. And in three moves, they 100% know your face, your name, and they're going to put the notes in the book. And you're now a regular. And if you like that restaurant, that is the definitive way to become someone that you... And then all of a sudden you have a local, like you're the local. You're the local spot. That's John McDonald. For more on his restaurant group, visit MercerStreetHospitality.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.